Hello and welcome to South Beach Sessions, Super Bowl edition of South Beach Sessions. We are kind of lonely here because we're outside of Radio Row, but we wanted our fix of sports. We wanted to get close to the Super Bowl, wanted to get close to sports, and we can't use ESPN people to do it anymore. So Nick Wright is the guy we have gone to, and I've long been an admirer of his work. He got into the game pretty young. He's been very good at this. He's funny in that he's very self-aware and he is introspective. He understands his journey is super interesting, how it is that he got where it is that he got. But one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to him, and I hope I'm not betraying any intimacies here, is because he has been trying to be the king of this game for a long time. It's important to him to be the guy who is the mightiest of all the takers. It's so important to him. Mike, that I have come to realize that he is very happy. This is through sources. I will not betray any of the confidences that gave me this information. I don't think he'll even find it to be much of a betrayal. That Nick Wright is happy that Bomani Jones is now in his 40s because now Nick Wright feels he's got his rightful claim to be the greatest of the takers under 40. That Nick Wright feels like he is now somebody who has his own decade in terms of being a sports opinion guy now that Bomani Jones has moved on to the old man taker of being in his 40s. So I wanted to talk to him about his story, and we'll talk about it honestly, and then you will make your own determination about whether he is the best taker in the business under the age of 40 in sports. Nick, what do you regard as the most interesting parts of your story, your journey? Being the first person on the LeBron James is the GOAT corner. I think that defines me as a person, as a man, as a take artist. Uh, I don't know. I think uh, I think my family. I think because it's uh, the family that I grew up with, meaning like my mom, dad, and sister. is a very interesting, you know, unit. And then the family I have now, my wife and our three kids. I think that I think that tells you the story of how I became me. For those who don't know, then, what are the parts that you would regard as landmarks? Well, so for me, like, as a kid, my mom from the Northeast, Vassar to Johns Hopkins to Harvard. My dad barely graduated high school, really rough upbringing in Kansas City. And he might not like me saying this, a borderline criminal. And then ends up catching on at the fire department. Fire department strikes. They uh, look for the union leader. Union leader's not around. My dad says, I'm the leader. They throw him in jail. And that kind of raises his profile in the union. So the union says, hey, kid that barely graduated high school, we want to send you to Harvard to do a trade union program. That's where he and my mom get together. And they end up, you know, coming back to Kansas City. And I have this very different, you know, two diametrically opposed parents, which is probably why they're, you know, they're not still married. But it was it, for me, it was great, which is, you have my mom kind of traditionally educated, came from some privilege in New York City, and my dad, who is, I think, the only person in the country, literally, who has now a master's from Harvard and a law degree and no undergraduate degree to his name. They had to amend the Missouri bar to let that happen, and they raised us together. They stayed together till I was 14. And so my sister and I got kind of two very different worldviews and my dad imposed on me from a very early age, my mom as well, but my dad more so, kind of an inherent sense of the importance of social justice. He ran the firefighters union for 30 years, got sent to jail twice, had to be pardoned by the governor twice, once with a pregnant wife staring at a one year sentence because it was what was right. And I think that kind of gave me the, 
formation for who I am. And then as a young adult, 23 years old, I, you know, I fell in love with a woman who happened to have two kids and no dad. And so we all became a family together. And that was at a time where when she, when Danielle and I got together, I had a, like a legitimately crippling gambling problem. I was depressed. I I had a borderline, probably substance abuse problem and seeing her and how hard she worked for those kids is what straightened me out. And that's what allowed me to kind of become, you know, who I am now. So like, I would say my, my mom, dad, and sister early. And then my wife and my kids who are my kids now. Well, tell me about your wife then. Tell me about how she took someone who was a wretch like me and, and mate and yeah. taught you spirituality, taught you a different perspective, taught you really, I don't, I don't know. Uh, you were saying your family passed down social causes, but I imagine your wife has a great deal to do with being the wind at your back on some of that stuff. Yeah. So my wife, you know, had a tougher upbringing than me, I think it's fair to say, and bounced around was in Sacramento when her parents were together. And then all of a sudden was drugged to Costa Rica temporarily. And then all of a sudden she's in Mississippi and she's a 16 year old girl in Mississippi and she's pregnant. And all of a sudden she's a 17 year old single mom in Mississippi and she made it work without any help from anyone aside from her mother. She then goes to Kansas city and has another child and has no help at all aside from this point from her sister to a degree and her mom and just worked when she and i met we met at she was a promoter at a nightclub every thursday night she was a promoter at a place called the hangout and i would show up every thursday night just to see her and try to convince her you know you know what would help your nightclub is if you ran ads on my radio show and she which by the way would not have helped it was a terrible <laughs> idea, but it was just and, when and, you're and not a great pickup line either not, in terms like, not a great pickup line. But here's the thing. I was literally making eight dollars an hour. I look the way I look now, except less money for clothes. And I the only cool thing about me is I have a, a cool job. So it's like the only the only entry point I had. OK, but hold and on. So, so you've got a cool job. But at this point, you also have a gambling problem and a drug problem. With a cool job, like this is all yeah. happening because you're you're giving her credit for cleaning you up, right? Yeah. Well, so I right after college was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and won fifty grand, and they just send you the full fifty. You're responsible for the taxes. And while I was in college, that was like the internet poker boom. And I'm a legitimately, I know everybody thinks they're a good poker player. I'm a good poker player because I get the math of it. So I had a bunch of money in college, and then all of a sudden, like. I, now I'm going backwards a bit. Like I started playing, there was a casino in Syracuse, New York called Turning Stone. You only had to be 18. So I could drive to the casino, started playing in some decent sized poker games at that casino. Some uh, Armenian fellas invited me to their games in downtown Syracuse. And I was there four times a week. Massive swings of money. It's, at one point I remember I owed the guy in the game $2,000. I had $210 in my to my name and I was, you know, on the books buying in for another thousand because how else am I going to like, and that's how you like ruin your life. I mean, that that's the story. Um, and so I could have three to $5,000 swings in an evening when I had like all the money I, 
I put, let me put it like this. Every dollar to my name usually was in my pocket, right? Like that's kind of the life of like a poker player, gambler kind of guy struggling, but while also kind of trying to achieve this goal of always want to do what I do now. Then I get out of college, go to Kansas City. Kansas City's got five casinos, great gambling tent. And right after college, I get on who wants to be a millionaire and they send me 50,000. My buddy, the week after they um, sent me the money, my buddy Danny Parkins, who's a great radio host in Chicago, by the way, his 21st birthday, we go to Vegas. My first time ever in Vegas. I want another $23,000 in Las Vegas. So now I'm 22 with close to $75,000 cash. So like, and I'm doing night radio and radio show ends, I go play cards, go play cards. Like that's what I would do. And if I won at poker, great. And if I lost at poker, I'd go to the blackjack table, try to get it back. And that's the killer. I just, I'm curious as to how it is that you got all of this cleaned up because that sounds like a, you shouldn't have succeeded after that. Like all the, the way you're describing this, that young and reckless, that should all swallow you. I really think it was going to. And that's the interesting thing about my wife. So, so she and I, then I, I won't tell you the courting story. Just know that I pursued her for the better part of a year. She finally agreed to go on a date with me because I told her I was moving. I told her I got a job in Seattle. I had not gotten a job. I'd never been to Seattle. I was like, I move in a week. You're never going to go on a date with me. She finally went on a date with me. We fall in love. So as we, and we quickly fell in love once we actually got together. So I find out, okay, this, this nightclub she promotes, that's her third job. She works 40 hours a week. Uh, selling men's suits at a men's warehouse. She works 30-ish hours a week at BB, a women's clothing store, and she's a nightclub promoter. Working better part of 80 hours a week, probably for a net total of less than $1,000 a week, right? And I'd be going to the casino, i lose $1,000 in 20 minutes, and I couldn't look myself in the eye about it. I just couldn't. I was like, this is, like, I see how hard she's working, I'm falling in love with her. I'm falling in love with the kids. And I'm like, you know, you can't, I just couldn't, I didn't care at the time. This is a little depressing, I guess. I didn't care at the time enough about me. I had like, I think some depression, self-worth issues, whatever. I didn't care enough about me to not do it, but I cared enough about them, which is why, you know, people see us and especially like along the path, right? She's a black woman, single mom, couple kids, rough upbringing. And they seen, um, me like right when I got the Fox job, for example, and people, they would think they were saying something nice. They'd be like, man, you did a really amazing thing for her and those kids. Oh, wow. That's insulting. God almighty. Right. But they, they didn't mean it bad, but it's the, it's wow. This guy who's got a good job, all that, you know, and I've, you know, I've adopted the kids. We now have a kid together. But no, but the reason it's insulting is because she saved you. You didn't save save shit there. Exactly right. That's the story. The thing is, they don't know. Now, like, it was a perfect thing. Like, we all needed each other. But she was actually, in an odd way, surviving more so than me. She had figured it out. Like, I'm just going to have to work my ass off, you know, and I'm going to be able to make it work. But I was going in the other direction. Well, I never I never knew. I always wondered, how does this guy unspool these particular race subject tapestries on television when there's never the room for it on television? And he doesn't have the life experience, I don't think, to understand this well what it is that he's talking about. And I just realized you say it's just depressing, but God almighty, Nick, it sounds it sounds like love made you like love. You're sitting here saying that you were depressed and didn't have self-worth. But the loving of this woman and the seeing of this woman struggle when she was a good person who had 
your work ethic, but maybe didn't have some of the privileges that you had. Yep. Of course, that informs everything. Like this, it's a love story. The way that you talk about black people on television. I'll tell you the night the Trayvon Martin verdict came down. I was sitting in my house in Houston, and it came down, and I went in the bedroom, and it was the first time my wife had ever seen me cry, and I was sobbing. I get teared up thinking about it because I think of the moment, and I said to her because she was she was seemingly fine. And the reason, a little context, our son is almost the exact age Trayvon would have been now, right? Because we lived in a similar neighborhood to the one Trayvon got killed in. I had thought, I'm like, hey, there's a good thing when we moved to Houston, like moving to a nice neighborhood, like all this stuff. And, and I said to her, I was like, why is this hitting me so much harder than you? And this is her quote, not mine. She's like, baby, I've been black for 30 years. You've been black for five. Nick, what we see happening in America right now, like I have seen, this is what we have been watching on the steps of the Capitol is Malcolm X chickens come home to roost. This ain't my problem. Really? You guys are going to attack freedom and each other and you're going to fight white people, but you've been holding us down for 60, you know, 60 years that this country's been a real democracy or whatever it is, 65 years. And you've been holding us down the entire time. Like you you have learned that because you've loved it. And because there is a there is a particular fear you have that is you. So there are the folks that will put up just the raw stats of people is that people killed by the police or the and and boil it down to a numbers thing. You're more likely to be attacked by a dog or whatever. But you cannot calculate the mental tax of every time if you have a teenage particularly son he goes out with his friends that little pang of fear even if you know he's a great kid and even if you know it exists i would argue you can't really understand it until you feel it so i do think there is a level of understanding that comes with once you are actually anxious for someone you are responsible for that is you it's just whether or not you're going to believe people which is why i've gotten i get i have no tolerance whatsoever for the folks that try to dismiss it as a numbers thing and because you would have to believe that black people across the country are all just lying that they're all just telling the same lie like you talk to black parents and they will tell you this is this is what i worry about whether you think it's real or not Nobody's like, you shouldn't be afraid of sharks. Like people are just just afraid of them. And so I do think there's a level of like, you just understand it because you feel it. And I do think that, you know, I, I think that that is a part of my story. There's no question that's a part of my story. Well, help me understand this part of it, Nick. So you're telling me, right? Because uh, I I knew of you in passing. I mean, really, you're coming up. It's If it's not pre-internet, it's right around there, right? When you're the hot shot in Kansas City and you've got a distinctive voice at a trough that not a lot of people have a distinctive voice on. You're a young star in the gas bag industry. So you're telling me that as you're rising in your youth towards something that feels and looks pretty cool, that you had a gambling problem, you had a drug problem, and you were clinically depressed? You had the I don't job- know if I was clinically depressed. I never, and by the way, to be clear on the drug problem, I don't want to overstate it. I was just a, I, I, it was only marijuana, but it was 
the frequency and dependence on it was what I would consider a dependency issue. You know what I mean? Like, so it was just a, there was no circumstance where I wouldn't just be like, man, I got to smoke a joint. You know what I mean? Like it was that type of, that type of thing. But that's, that's uh, brain chemistry stuff. No, right. You're just trying, you're looking for some healing on whatever, exactly. whatever your depressive tendencies are. Exactly right. And so, you know, I, I used to, when I was in Houston, my partner there, John Lopez, great man. I used to say to him, and by the way, I still kind of feel this way. And my wife and I are great. We're amazing. I was like, you do understand that if you want this show, he and I, our show to survive, if for any reason she were to ever leave, you have to let me move in with you, right? And he was like, oh, I know. He's like, I know. He's like, you wouldn't go a week by yourself. And there is no doubt in my mind that even where I am right now, if something were to fracture that, like I would all of it, it'd be 10 days or less. I clearly need like therapy or like to figure out what my issues are, but I've also always justified it as I think my, and I don't, someone else said, someone said this in a movie once. I was like, oh, I agree with that. Um, my angst is my edge. Like the thing that makes me continue to work. Cause I do think my biggest positive trait is my work ethic. You're unusually informed. You can't be a master of all things, right? And right. A, a lot of sports columnists, and certainly the ones on television, they have uh, their wheelhouses. But, yeah, you're unusually informed. Uh, you're a grinder. I think you're selling yourself short, though. You're telling me, like, what you're describing when you say, when you talk about therapy, uh, is that love or is that codependency? Like, when you examine that, uh, I, I don't know that I believe you, that your life would fall apart in 10 days without oh. this woman. Oh, you haven't spent enough time around me. No, no, no. It would. The addict stuff, it's all there. It's just in check because of the the folks around me. Again, my, my mom, I won't tell her I did this show because she'll be so, she'll listen to it and freak out. But it's, she's, I mean, she's right. But um, none of it is quote unquote healthy. But I also don't think it's bad. I think it's part of what makes me me. And like my family's not going anywhere. And so like I have these guardrails and it allows me to occasionally kind of dangle my my toes in dangerous waters, which I actually think for someone that my job is personality, I don't think that's a bad thing. It keeps me sharp as far as I will stay up and make sure I watch all the games because the, the fraud complex thing, like you can't be exposed and not know stuff. I'll do all those things that help me. And it's like, and I've got... You know, and I, I, I've got the people around me to help with it. So I don't I don't have a problem with it. Do people like you? How does this one work? Like, I I, I like listening to you, and I know you get the polarizing stuff on yeah. stupid shit. Like, uh, you know, he says LeBron's the greatest, he's not the yeah. greatest, and then you make just empirical arguments that are bulletproof, and it doesn't matter. It's not an interesting conversation in any way. But in our world, it's made you somebody who I think is uh, – confused as Skip Bayless light uh, because people aren't being discerning about how well prepared you are, how uh, how eloquent you can be on complicated subject matter, because you're also good at the takes and there's an entertainment quality yeah. to this. And there's just the ridiculousness of what sports television is. And, and where, by the way, I love the takes. I love them. Like I was excited when, when the great Mike Ryan, asked me to be on the show and what an honor and congrats to you guys for I, I see I've never seen a seamless thing you guys were someplace then you were not and you didn't miss a day it's unbelievable I didn't know what you were going to talk to me about 
I was like, maybe it's about the Harden trade. And I was excited for that. I really do love the takes. I love the takes. Um, here's what I think. I don't think there are many people who know me personally who think I'm a bad guy. I think most people who've been around me personally think I'm a good guy. I think if you've only consumed me via television, especially if you've only consumed me via 90-second clips, you're like, okay, that guy is a way more self-assured than he should be asshole. I think I come across that way sometimes. But at, here's the thing. At times, I kind of want to come across that way. I got no problem with coming across that way. What I do like, and I try not to read the comments, but I occasionally read the comments, is when there is a serious issue and we put a video out about it, the tweet response I often get is, man, I hate this guy, but he's really good on this. And the this is almost always the important stuff. The, it matters immensely to me that I am respected on the important stuff. It does not matter that much to me if you, you know, if you just happen to be wrong and you think Jordan's better than LeBron. Like, that's a you problem, not a me problem. Understood. You just said something that reminded us of somebody, and I'm, I'm asking this question with genuine curiosity. I don't even know how many landmines there are around it for you. Sure. But uh, Jason Whitlock, I remember him saying one time, there are no people who dislike Jason Whitlock. There are only people who don't know Jason Whitlock. And that, oh. may, that may have been true, uh, true once upon a time, but I feel, I, don't, I feel like he's gone off the deep end. I haven't talked to him in a long time, but uh, it's, been, it's bummed me out what's, what's happened with him in terms of- I the- know him. I don't like him. So there's one true story, quick story. Jason also once wrote when someone back when Jason, Jason once upon a time, people might not know this was an excellent sports columnist. You could argue you and Jason at one point in time were the two best in the country. One time Jason was doing a mailbag column. And this was, I would argue when his writing had waxed or waned, whichever the one that's getting worse is a bit. And someone was like, you know, Jason, I love your writing, but it seems like you don't put a final point on your columns, like they that you don't really put an ending. You don't have a conclusion. And his response was, I know this is going to sound arrogant, but I've heard that criticism my whole career. People are just upset my columns are over. And that was a good encapsulation. I was like, oh, he doesn't get it. It's like, no, it's actually just not great, a great piece. You just think people are like, where's more Jason? That's great. I actually, that's comedically perfect. I love the idea. But I don't think so. So Jason and I both were in Kansas City, and in fairness to him, when I got there, he was the biggest, not, I'm not making a joke here, he was figuratively the biggest fish in the pond, and I was the night guy, and I also disagreed with a lot of his non-sports takes, and so I took a lot of shots at him. So he didn't like me in Kansas City. We somehow seemingly reconciled because he did his farewell show on my show, but then like a six months later, he called into my show uninvited and basically did 20 minutes on me about how I'm pretend like ashamed of my upbringing. Wish I was black. It's an unbelievable 20 minute dissection of who he thinks I am. Fast forward five years. I get hired by Fox. Fox doesn't have at the time, a lot of employees. Like it's very small. They just hired Colin. Skip wasn't there yet. Like if I'm going to be on TV, it'd be good if I could go on Jason's show. So the bosses are like, hey, can you and Jason try to sit down? So I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. Like, So I text Jason. I'm like, hey, we should get together. I'll never forget it. He didn't have a show yet. So he didn't have a super jam-packed schedule. I text him the first week of May. He's like, I'm free June 7th. We worked 100 feet from each other. He was like, I'm free in a month. I'm like, okay, no problem. Like, I'm going to be above board. 
June 7th, I text him like, hey, or June 6th, I'm excited to sit and talk with you. Response, who is this? Okay, we're off to a great start. Finally, we get the meeting. He brings a boss to the meeting, which thank God he did because this is, there is a witness for this. And I basically say to him, hey, I got a proposition for you. Let's both act like we just met today. And if we don't like each other, great. If we do like each other, great. I was like, I can, I know I did some stuff that you didn't like back when we were in Kansas City. You did some stuff I didn't like. But it's better for all of us if we can try to see if we can work together. He wasn't having it. He wasn't having it. He wasn't having it. So finally, I'm like, all right, Jason, at the very least, if you respect me at all, and I couldn't even finish the sentence, because, and this, by the way, is an all-time checkmate of an argument. I give him credit for this. He goes, whoa, 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 Nick, stop right there. What makes you think I respect you? Have I ever told you I respect you? Why do you think I respect you? And I said it. I was like, you know what, Jason? That's a great point. I was like, I, I I, guess I operate assuming, unless otherwise told, people do respect me. You're right. You've never told me you respect me. I shouldn't assume you do. And that was the last conversation we had. That's it. And now I don't, you know, I don't know if he was at the Capitol last week or not. I haven't checked. Was he threatened by you in Kansas City? What was happening there? Do you want to do any know. pop psychology? Do you want how was it to work with him at Fox? Like what just what happened there? Well, I we never worked together at Fox. That was it. That was our last real interaction. Um, I don't know. I think that we have diametrically opposed views on the things that I think both of us find to be the most important things. And I can disagree with it is, and that is the type of thing where when people are like, oh, it's important with people you love and care about not to talk about race and politics. I'm like, no, it, that's the opposite. It's true because, you know, I, I need to know where you stand on some of these things to know if I want to associate myself with you. And I understand people might be like, that's not, you know, turning the temperature down, which we're supposed to do right now. But I, that's how I feel. Like people are like, oh, my God. I lost so many friends during the last four years once I found out what their stance and politics was. And I was thinking, I lost none because I already knew. And like, so I, so I think that's what it was. And I also think that I don't think he was threatened by me because I don't think to this day, like he views me anywhere in the same realm of like talent or ability as him. But you are, you know that, right? Like what's happened here, or look, man, I don't want to get into the whole history of radio versus journalism, and I don't want to bore the audience with uh, talk of uh, sports writers, but I had a conversation a long time ago with Jason Whitlock about what everything was becoming, Twitter and our beloved newspapers and journalism, and I remember telling him specifically, oh, Jason, we lost. We lost a long time ago. These these things that you're believing in journalistically, that things exist in a newspaper, like that day has passed by. It is now the future has arrived and we have been left behind. I never understood, Nick, why it is that uh, he was the black guy in Kansas City espousing largely white viewpoints. You were the white guy in Kansas City espousing largely black viewpoints. You didn't have the newspaper pedigree, but you were absolutely every bit as good as he was. And at, you were much younger. I was younger and... There I don't know. I do think there is an element of people want to be respected by the people they care about the most. And I like for, I don't, I don't know you very well at all, Dan, except for from being afar from a long time. We've spent a little bit of time together uh, and we've texted and stuff, but I would imagine like when you were columnist, you know, uh, aspiring to be columnist of the year, compliments from anyone were nice. But if, Bob Ryan 
sent you at the time. I think it would have been a telegram. Would it have been a telegram? <laughs> something, um, something by uh, phonograph. Something by phonograph, <laughs> I think is what it is. Um, if he was like, wow, read the column, that that had a special place for you. And I do think that it can be tough where if there are, you want to call it the barbershop or the people you grew up with or whatever it is, if those are the people who dislike some of your opinions the most, I think that can I think that can be wounded. And so I don't know. I but I, that's too much time spent on him. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Oh, but I'm just interested in sort of your story and the path. I'm sorry to get stuck in that, but no. your, your journalism you story, you came up through radio, so the newspaper yeah. guys didn't have the same respect for you. And Never. you and you came into Fox Sports, and, and the entire ESPN is populated by newspaper guys. There aren't radio guys there. Radio guys are Stugats. Radio guys are Sedano. You know, I, I, that's the only reason I'm talking to you about it, because I find interesting that you two had sort of like an entwined path, and you arrived yeah. in a place where out of Kansas City as the white guy, you were giving the opinions that I hoped that life experience would allow him to have given on behalf of his people. And I was always, look, man, I was an ally for that dude. I got very a mad. Huge ally. I, I tried to support the things that he was about and not make him an Uncle Tom, but we've gotten into the, he's gotten into his 50s now. And when you go full Clay Travis, dude, like I don't even understand what's happening there. Listen, you know I'm very close with Bomani. And Bamani was someone that also, when 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 Deadspin wrote that takedown piece of Jason a long time ago, Bamani was the only person on the record who supported him. And I know you supported him. And to see him turn on you and to turn on Bo, I'm like, what are you doing? Like the people who I know publicly and privately had his back and helped him rebound from some lows to see him turn on those people, I just can't. Like, I understand what Clay's doing. I get it. And that I, I don't want to get into too much because I'm like, Jason, I, I still work with Clay. But is but, that performance art? I don't know him at all. Like, I've always un operated under the premises that he wasn't just, you know, hypnotizing oafs for profit, that he actually believed know, some of what it is. That I, I, I don't know any. At, th at this point, I don't know. I don't know what anyone actually believes anymore. I think you can learn a lot about what happened at the Capitol by thinking about Kyrie Irving. And by that, I mean this. I think anybody, if they spend enough time online in the wrong corners of the internet without a strong base of knowledge, facts, and information to begin with, can get what I would call toxic internet brain. And like Kyrie's isn't, da Kyrie's isn't damaging. But I think Kyrie truly did believe the earth was flat. I think he tried to walk back so people make fun of him. But I think he believed that because people can't discern the difference between a Ken Burns doc and a well-manicured YouTube video. And so, like, I think when you – when what happened at the Capitol happened, there was, a, you know, a level of, I think, people that were like, oh, my God, we all know who these people are. And then it's like, oh, 
This lady, the, the, the woman who was killed, she owned a pool cleaning company. The dude with the zip ties, he did. He, he was like an executive at, a, at some type of aeronautics company. And it's like it, one other guy um, was a former CEO of a tech company. And then you saw him. It's like, oh, he spent five years in the wrong corners of the Internet and his brain went mush. And so I say that, say this. I don't know what anyone actually believes anymore. I don't know if it's performance or I don't know if they just all of a sudden got caught down a rabbit hole of QAnon and all that stuff. And they just now really believe it. Like, that's the scary thing. People dismiss QAnon, right? But QAnon believes that the government and the world is run by child-eating pedophiles. It is a co- the core belief. But if you believe that, if you truly believe that, then of course you think you're supposed to do that. You think you're doing the right thing. And that's not an excuse, but it's just... I think that you mentioned newspapers. My single, one of my strongest beliefs is if we don't get some ability to infuse financially every major city in the country by grant almost, I would pay tax dollars for it, to refund newspapers, then we might just be ruined. That we, it might not be recoverable. And I, because like the White House is always going to be covered. Congress is always going to be covered. But guess what actually affects your life typically? The school board, the water board, the courts, and nobody is going to cover that because it's not aggregatable, aggro, whatever that word is, and because there's not going to, but, but you have to have it. And I think that is, that's the most, to me, that is the single biggest threat we're facing is the lack of like on the ground Boots on the ground, local journalists. I can't believe it, Nick. I cannot believe. Like, one of the things, I mean, it's been heartbreaking for a number of reasons. I care about newspapers. I care about checks and balances. I care about journalism. But one of the most heartbreaking things of my professional life has been that this particular orange racist turd has been able to take a hatchet to the credibility of this thing that I've always loved in my life, that in a place like the Washington Post, is only a million times more credible in everything that they're saying than the president of the United States was for four years because of how important all of that is as a checks and balances on power. And I just, I can't believe in being heartbroken over the last, whatever, 18 months of what's happened in this country, I have been really heartbroken there. That not that it didn't even take a man of some substance and leadership and skill and acumen to destroy newspapers. It was just an orange racist turd. I joke all the time that, so I used to be a weekly viewer, and it's one of my, maybe I shouldn't say it, eh, whatever. It's one of my bucket list goals to be on Bill Maher's show. I'd love, I would absolutely love Oh, you'd be love, great on you know, that. Why? How would that not happen easily? Why wouldn't that I happen? I don't know. I, I don't know, but that I hope to have it happen in the next few years. Well, I would, wait a I minute. Who's fun. your agent? Like, why? That that shouldn't be very hard to have happen, although maybe they've got too many liberal leaners over there. If you, if, if you go full Republican, I think you'll get right on there. No problem. <laughs> right. But I, so I used to watch it every single week. I don't, I'm not quite as loyal a viewer as I once was because at times the show can be frustrating. And it's not Mars fault. It's because, call it six years ago, that you would bring on, you know, conflicting viewpoints and you would say, listen, we've got a $2 trillion deficit. It is a problem. It isn't a problem. Here's what we should do. Here's what we shouldn't do. Now, 
it is we've got a two trillion dollar deficit no we don't we have a surplus no it's actually 38 trillion you the way we talk politics it would be as if to go to my hobby horse my favorite discussion i went on tv i was like i'm going to tell you why lebron's better than jordan because lebron james has 10 championships and jordan never won one and you were like wait jordan won six lebron has four nope lebron's got 10 jordan has zero we can't agree on the ground rules that's the only like to me that that is the salvation of sports talk is we all agree who won the game there is no well i don't know patrick mahomes better beat the browns this year after he lost in the super bowl last year but that is how we talk about everything else everything else is we can't actually get to solutions because we don't agree on what has happened we don't agree on the set of facts and it's it's that scary man that's scary, and to me, that's that's like legit dangerous. Uh, it has been. I just find fascinating how easily you are forever tugged. Like you want to keep having this parsing of hairs argument about LeBron versus Michael Jordan. You want to? They disrespected. I'm older than you, right? So I heard the way that they disrespected Michael Jordan and hit him with all the shit they hit LeBron with before he won the championship. Not strong enough, not you know, mentally frail, blah, 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 blah. And then I saw someone come who's 60 pounds heavier and does all the very same things that Michael Jordan does. And it's just obvious to the eye, bigger, stronger, faster. Yeah. 15 years later, even Michael Jordan is allowed to age without us having to mythologize him. But you really want to parse those hairs. You want to fight the entire internet. I mean, it's one of the dumbest things you do. You want no, to fight- the smartest thing I've ever you, done. You, 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 <laughs> you want to fight the internet with facts and you're right and right again and again and again you're nick right you're obviously right and yet you're fighting the mythology where you'll never be right it doesn't matter how many facts you have it's only 20 years from now that anyone's going to say you know what nick was right lebron was the best i've ever seen can and i then tell you something amazing about this and then i have to i don't know how much time we have i have to tell you one thing about our relationship that you don't know about but one thing that's amazing so i get hired by fox in my first day was April 20th of 2016. And at once I got hired, I obviously didn't have my own show. The show didn't come until Labor Day of 17. And so for, and I went out there, by the way, speaking of the family, I commuted back and forth, Houston to LA. My wife and kids stayed in Houston uh, because my son was going to be a senior in high school. So I was out there just to do stuff for Colin. I was a guest on a show and I filled in for him. And I was there on the show after the Cavs beat the Warriors. At that point, you, I guess you knew me a little bit because you're, you know, you had done radio and you're in the industry, but I was just a voice of a thousand. And people were like, wow, Nick, like, you know, your rise, you cut through. I, I surveyed the landscape. I didn't realize it until after the fact. I was like, what happened here? And it was, there is, there is someone on every corner and there is every take corner is occupied by at least it's seven unbelievable. people. It's and unbelievable. Love- Nick, it's just the easiest take in the world to argue empirically and sound like you're controversial and it's not controversial and, and here's at the thing. all. As of, as of June of 2016, no one was on the corner. I've been a LeBron fan my whole life. We like, I, I looked around, I'm like, wait a minute. Like the furthest anyone would go as of June of Nick, 16. You was, have to be looking around saying these people can't be this stupid. Not all of I them. I couldn't believe to, it. To leave this it was corner. unclaimed real estate. <laughs> I was like, hold on. Wait a minute. Like the furthest anyone will go is maybe one day he'll pass Jordan. I'm like, nope, already did it. Obvious. And the moment obvious, I said it. But obvious. Obviously. Obvious. At the moment I said it, LeBron's better than Jordan. 
it was as if I had been in the industry 20 years. It was just like a, a like a tidal it's wave. It's so stupid, Nick. <laughs> Nick, you are so much better at all the other stuff. You are manipulating this people, these people the way that Trump manipulates his oafs. Like, you took the easiest argument in the world and pretended it was the hardest just because everyone disagrees with you because they're stupid. It's so good. And now people are like, and now people, LeBron is the most watched, talked about athlete in the world. So stupid. And people watch his games and they think of me. Can you imagine? It's so ridiculous. <laughs> no, you. it's a scam. The whole thing is a scam. You should be laughing at yourself. Actually, you know what? I take back everything I said. It is brilliant <laughs> because you have manipulated stupidity. Like you've taken the entire stupidity of what sports arguing is and at the most microscopic levels, arguing about the dumbest shit, you've made it your own, you've claimed it, and you wear it as a disguise so you can then, talk about the social justice stuff and be woke. That's absolutely right. And then... Two years later, you know what falls in my lap of my hometown team? The yeah, greatest Mahomes. quarterback ever. Mahomes, yes, yes. Don't think I wasn't <laughs> jealous. No, I know, I know. And I he's amazing. And, and he's going to be better than LeBron. No, it's he's unfair. Be no, no, no life, life, is, life is turned around for you. Like I have a question for you before we finish. And I don't know how time, much time we have, but I have a question for you. So when Fox was auditioning me, one of my second or third times ever, they'd fly me out and I would go on the show called Countdown. It was on at night on FS1, just like PTI, except an hour. It's 10, 10 questions and you answer them all. And I'll never forget it. I think this might have been the reason I got hired. And because they mentioned it to me when they actually hired that this, that this stuck out to them. And there was a discussion on Cam Newton not getting calls for personal fouls. And I remember sitting in the room before, like the prep room. And I'm like, I know what I think. Of, I know what I think the reason is. I think there's implicit bias about, you know, he's big, he's strong, he's black. And I don't think the refs are racist, but I think that he's not getting calls other quarterbacks would. And I was like, do I really want to say that? It's like, that's, because I was also, by the way, doing the show, I forget the gentleman's name, but with an older black gentleman. And I knew he wasn't going to say it. I was like, going to look a little weird. And I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm oh, going to go. Wow. I'm gonna I, say I don't know what the story is exactly. I have a vague recollection of this somehow. Is this you? taking complicated subject matter on television there there's just not room there's simply not the room of radio to tackle something this hard in front of people without sounding ridiculous uh, is this i i don't know what well, the so story what is happened, so i i went on and i was like listen i think it's because he's black and i had about two minutes i was like listen there's this stanford study that says doctors don't give black people enough pain medicine there's this study that says even black doctors do it and i was like i think it's implicit bias whatever that's my take you dm'd me the next afternoon and you mentioned it on your show it was the first time you and i had ever had any connection and it was the first time nationally anyone had ever acknowledged anything i had done in that way, other than like breaking some news in Houston. And I've always wondered, because it wasn't put out on the internet, were you just watching FS1 one night? Did someone tell you, like, and you probably don't remember, but for me, I called, I, I, this is probably poor form, I screenshotted your DM to me, texted it to everyone I knew. I was like, Levitard, and a buddy of mine texted me, and was like, Levitard's talking about you on his show. And I was like, I couldn't um, figure out how you would even come across it, but it was a seminal moment of my career. That wow. that that moment. Um, that is touching. That makes me feel old, hugely flattered. I don't remember the details of how I came upon it, but I will tell you 
that the specifics of why I remember it is because I've been trying to walk past televisions all my life and have someone walk that high wire with that degree of difficulty on something as stupid as sports. Like you, you not only made an argument, like it just, it's real hard unless you're super informed and you can just hit people overhead with, uh, with the research. Like I, I just specifically remember wherever it is that I was hearing it. And I don't remember where I heard it. I'm like, man, this guy inundated us with about three minutes of information that's not disputable in a in a framework that doesn't allow for that. That the the conversation on television can't be like that. Uh, you you know this. You've learned it. I, no matter how good you are at doing it, those are tight spaces that you you can't get into the deep stuff where you're saying something like Cam Newton doesn't get calls because he's black, and then anyone hears anything you have to say after that. Right. I would imagine, and it's the stuff that I get the most satisfaction from. Like, I think that is... It's hugely fulfilling, Nick. It must be, yeah. to, to that because that's the most challenging thing, to work outside of the framework of the confines of television to actually give complicated thoughts that aren't bite-sized, that make people think. It's where I'm fortunate to go back to the very beginning about my, my parents, like the insistence on education and like being learned. It's where it's, you can't do that unless you actually have like a big, and I'm not trying to, I, I have giant gaps of knowledge elsewhere, but I know a lot about race in America and I know a lot about American history. Those are like kind of my two passionate areas other than sports. And so the, like, it allows me to talk about that in a very, I think, unique way. And I also think it's, I think it is important that there are, and this is why your show's always been important. It's important that there are people saying things that the people that don't want to hear it can't dismiss as, well, of course they think that it's a, like, because I'm harder, sounds weird. I'm harder to dismiss because I'm a white guy. And that shouldn't be the case, but there is a level of, it is important, uh, and you obviously know this, it is important for the majority to amplify the minority viewpoint if they truly believe it, because there are certain people, certain people will never be reached. There are certain people who are, might be reachable, but they're more likely to be reachable at times by me than by Bamani, even though Bamani is even more eloquent on these things. Oh, he's and the so best I, I've ever seen, Nick. Like I don't, I, in my entire history doing this in this business, if there was, if there was merit, if, it, if we were dealing strictly with meritocracy, Bomani Jones would be the most famous person in sports media doing this because he's that much smarter and that much better on all of this. And Bomani's a legit genius. Like, went to college at 16, was memorizing license plates at eight, like a legit genius. And so, like, he has that, you know, I, people think I'm smart just because I'm smarter than most sports TV guys. Oh, but, Nick, you and I are not smart compared to Momani. Like no, people think exactly I'm smart. Right. I get the, yeah. the people think I'm smart too. I'm nobody's intellectual. Right. This dude is a, is very much a. No, genius. he's a genius. We're, you and I are both smarter than Pablo, though. Maybe Mina. I don't know. I don't know. That that's I don't, they're coming for everybody. Those two. They're coming for everybody, and you know it. That's the thing. And you should. I don't like that. Pablo because he's younger than me. I, well, that's the thing. That's why they're coming for everybody. They're, they. Bo and I are cool because Bo's two years older than me, so I'm like, oh, it's fine. But anyone younger than me, Pablo, he's out. I don't no, know how old you, me. You need to explain with the proper reverence how what we're talking about. You and I sort of have a bemused eye for sports gas baggery. You've been at it a long time. You could tell who's performing. Hell, your network has a couple of guys 
guys right at the top of the food chain there who are in on the act with Bayless and Cowherd. Uh, so you know who is actually exceptional at this, and you, like me, know that there ain't ever been anyone like Bomani Jones. I love Stephen A. Smith. I think he's great at television. He's great as an entertainer. He is not nearly as good at all of this as Bomani Jones is. Oh, Stephen A.'s pretty great. <laughs> it's pretty great. Listen, man, here's the thing. And you took a little subtle shot at Skip earlier. I'm going to let it slide. Here's the thing about Skip and Stephen A. that I'm going to give them credit for better than anyone in the history of the industry. They are entertaining on mute. How about that? It's television. They're giving takes. I could watch Stephen A. on an on a, a, airport television with no sound or closed captioning might get me for 10 minutes. Nick, I'm going to tell you. And Bo- I know I, what he's saying. Nick, I'm I gonna, know what he's taking. I'm going to tell Bomani that you said Stephen A. Smith is better than he is. I'm going to tell Bomani that. I, he's not smarter than him. Listen, A, man, the, you, you tell Kevin Durant I said LeBron's better than him. See, I brought it back. There's no shame in that. There's no shame in that. <laughs> Uh, Nick, good talking to you. We will talk to you again. I am assuming that I did not know that story. That's the story that you wanted to tell that I had no, you really think you were hired because of that. Well, when they hired me, I asked them, I was, because they kept interviewing me, not interviewing me, but auditioning me. And the thing that both of the two bosses there uh, said to me was they were like, you, you said something about cam that no one else was saying. And you were able to deliver it like, basically what you said it was a high compliment and i don't think it hurt that at the time no one at espn was acknowledging fs1 at all and you on the biggest radio show on espn said nick wright of fox sports and i wasn't even nick wright of fox sports yet i was nick wright of 610 sports in houston this is just doing little stuff so i do think it helped and i do think that was the moment and so I, I think about it. You yeah, were actually, good. you know what's funny? I don't know if Mike Ryan knows this. Maybe he does because he was out of town. But where my problems started with ESPN and new regime stuff publicly, this isn't, I'm not betraying any confidences here. This was something that played out in public. Uh, I was called out because I was quoting you on what was happening because, and I don't want to Oh, get, yeah. Well, oh, my God. That you took a bullet for my quote. <laughs> That's totally right. You read my quote and it got clipped without you saying Nick Wright said. And people were like, oh, man, are you upset with Levitard? He's, I was like, no, first of all, he gave me credit. And second of all, he's taking all the heat for it. Like, I'm just like, oh, it's yeah. Funny. I didn't even think of it that way because I thought it was unfair that like this is the thing that was happening. And I think I can go back over all of this in a way. Uh, because all of this played out in public. But if you saw where the beginnings uh, came to unravel at ESPN for me and for us, it was in a segment. I Mike Ryan was out of town, and I kicked Mina Kimes out of the room because I was not good with the idea that, in you know, I'm I'm your lead Hispanic voice. I'm I, you've made me the most dominant Hispanic sports voice in the country. You can't have me sitting out brown babies in cages at the border. You can't like you can't right. do that. My f- father's accent isn't for sale. And so um, when when Trump is saying send them back to somebody, you know, who's got this platform, this voice, and I'm the son of Cuban exiles and I've always negotiated freedom because I'm the son of Cuban exiles, like it can't be that. And I remember I had to use Nick as cover. Nick thinks I was cover for him. I had to use Nick as cover because, okay, this has been said by someone in sports, so I've got a sports angle that I need. I can come close to this rail. That's not a railing. We've seen what's happened since then. I need sports cover here. Nick Wright of Fox Sports says uh, this is racist and you're complicit. No, man. 
You gave me cover there. That was not me. I took the heat, but I want. I needed something. I needed something to violate corporate policy in a way that wasn't going to get me fired. You were. Absolutely- we thought we were providing cover for each other. No, you which were. Is no, funny. no, but that's the thing. You, you absolutely like. There's no question about it. I needed something. I had nothing, nothing, and so I had to go to Fox Sports to go get it. Well, I appreciate that, and I do want to say Mike knows this. By the way, do you know this, Dan? The first time Mike Ryan and I ever met in person, he and his wife stayed at my house. It's a true story. The uh, first tell, time. Tell me that story, that is, Mike. Tell me that story. I want to hear this story. Why that's is it a true that, story? Why? Why? It was weird. We were we were fans of each other's work, and and yeah. we got to know each other a little bit through just texting. And we were, my wife and I were literally booking a a, a trip to New York when Nick volunteered, hey man, whenever you're in New York, you got a place to stay hey, here, we'll, we'll, we'll go out. And I'm like, well, shit, we'll take you up. Super on awkward, there. super awkward. <laughs> you guys are, awkward. You guys are always, great. you guys are always adult. You're adults now. That is something that, uh, that 19 year olds do. That's I mean, weird. No, but so, but it's weird. The thing is, I live, I live in uh, Harlem in a decent sized house. Yeah. And one of the things that sucks about New York is even if you have friends, they usually live in an apartment. So you can't, you know, in New York City, it's a pain. It's cost a ton of money for a, for a hotel room, obviously. And my son was off in college. So we have a big house with an extra bedroom. So I was like, come stay with me. And then I, right when they got there, I was like, yo, walk with me to the bodega to buy beers. I was walking down the street and meeting everybody. But it's actually a compliment to your guy's show because I listen to the local hour at least and sometimes the whole show every day when i was in la i would go to the same diner and i would right when i got there to eat breakfast because you're a super fan you're a super fan we actually met before we hung out before in la we had a good time in i did LA not wait a minute before i, did, I crashed wait a minute, at your place. Wait a minute. i did not yeah. know this so hold on a second nick yeah so you're like you because you've arrived in a fairly wonderful way and i don't mean in, in a wonderful place and i don't mean this to be any kind of patronizing to you because no. i'm I am uh, weirdly proud of you, even though I don't know you in any meaningful (laughs) way. Like, I don't don't know you at all. And so you and I have spent, I don't think, any time together except at a New York event uh, backstage. Yeah, in in the green room. Um, so, but no, I've seen what you've been doing with your career and honest to God, I haven't seen a whole lot of people who have tried to do it the way but that yeah, I, I'm a super fan that I was trying to do it. And so I didn't realize that the influence on everything we, that you were doing was that strong. I knew you loved what we did. I didn't know yeah. you loved it enough he, to have Mike Ryan stay in your house. He knew that yeah. I was in LA when your when your family was split in time, you would keep going back to Houston, watch your son yeah. play basketball yeah. and you were kind of, I think I'm not revealing too much. It was lonely for you out in LA yeah. you were happy to hang you met Cynthia and then we got comfortable enough to yeah the worst part house. the worst I, part though on, Nick is a, it was uh, the week uh, that uh, you moved into the brownstone though it was the week that you moved into the home which yeah. I didn't notice which I burned which got burned by surprise a little bit that's too that's uh, um, Nick's wife yeah the but no when I say like a big big fan I got like an odd thrill when I got the alert Chris Cody has followed me on Twitter I'm like yes it's so yeah. weird. Nick, I don't understand any of this. You're going to have to explain it to me, okay? Because I really don't understand. Some of the people like you who gravitate toward our stuff. Who it's have, funny, man. No, but hold on. But people who have, like, some veteran savvy around how stupid all of this 
stuff is. The idea that people like you and Mike Schur are all awestruck meeting Chris Cody is fundamentally ridiculous. Like, I don't understand at all what's happening there. It's great. And, like, I, you know, I, so I, I would listen to the show and I would at times do God's. Would like because I I don't know Stu Gatz at all either except for I, I met him. How great at is the he? Same event how how great you. how great is he? How great well, is he? As uh, here's you, the thing. you as a guy who appreciates good radio, how great That's is he? That's the thing. And by the way, appreciates good takes. Stu Gatz's takes are great. Like th- because they're ridiculous. I'm like these are great takes. Like I just just like just a take a uh, 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 Richter scale. I'm like these are great takes. Like these are legitimately really great takes. original like, takes to bring to Dan so that he could be the hero of knocking them down as the straight yeah. man. I'm like, and, and at times I'd be like, Dan, I don't, I don't think you, you guys are laughing at him, but like, that's a good take. Like, guess what? Good take. Well, plus take. The, the thing that you like, the, the smartest people around you, you probably noticed this too. If you're like getting the deepest embeddings of the show, the, the smartest people who arrived in our world fastest realized very fast. No, 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 no. I need to side with Stugatz on everything. I need to, <laughs> if I'm going to win over this audience, if I'm going to be Mina Kimes, Pablo Torre, Dominique Foxworth, I can't beat up the guy with the take that's uh, sophomoric. I need to side with him. And and then, of course, I lose after that. Dan, and I hate to end on a sour note, you seem to think that people are siding with Stugatz out of strategy as opposed to the fact his <laughs> takes are just better. <laughs> Nick, thank you for spending time with us, and thank you for the kind words about us influencing you. And thank you. Like, you give that stuff up all the time. You talk very vulnerably about stuff uh, people in our business don't like to talk about vulnerably. People haven't asked, so I'm glad you asked. I'm glad to be able to give my wife some, you know, a small percentage of the credit she deserves. Appreciate you guys. Happy for you guys. Continued success. Thank you, buddy. Thank you for supporting South Beach Sessions. Thank you to Nick Wright for giving us some vulnerability there, some honesty I don't think you hear a whole lot of. That guy was not camouflaged there. So thanks to Nick Wright, and thanks to you for supporting us. If you're not aware of the story around South Beach Sessions and Stupidity and Mystery Crate and the Dan Lebitard Show with Stu Gatz and the Lebitard and Friends Podcast Network, we don't have anything right now as a pirate ship in the way of currency outside of you. You are the currency. The fact that you subscribe, you rate, and review. We are in free agency, and we are about to land somewhere. Very soon, one would assume, the pirate ship will land on on some shores somewhere, and we will do so with our audience in tow because we have our feeds and they are valuable because our show is valuable because your subscriptions, your loyalty, your rating, your reviewing is valuable. Thank you for supporting us the way that you do. It's what's literally kept the content free right now is we've had no sponsors or very little in the way of sponsorship, and we have been riding it alone for a month giving you the content for free, working for free in order to keep this afloat. All we ask for in exchange is that you help some of our charitable efforts, you help uh, the sponsors when they do arrive, and that you subscribe, rate, and review because it has value to us now as we're in free agency. Tell the people that you know as well, rate, subscribe, and review to all of the stuff we got going on. South Beach Sessions, Levitard and Friends Podcast Network, Stupidity, Mystery Crate, and The Dan Levitard Show with Stugatz. Please Help us there because you are legitimately helping us. It is why this is a symbiotic relationship where we are doing the content for free through all manner of technical difficulties and 
because it's expensive, we are trying to keep this thing afloat for you in a way that gives you the content you're used to without the infrastructure that we had before. All of that is a long-winded way of saying thank you, and please keep supporting this thing the way that you have been. We will be back with South Beach Sessions next week. 